We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. Our church will have five ministry fronts, faith and work, mercy and justice, community formation, worship and evangelism, and church planting. And tonight is about the third area. It's about community formation. And through the passage that Rebecca just read to us, God is teaching us that a church must be characterized by two things. Unity on the one hand and diversity on the other hand. And that both of these, both unity and diversity, are necessary for any church and for every church to be a healthy church. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, before we dive into these two chapters, let me just give a little bit of background. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote 2,000 years ago to the Christians that lived in the city of Corinth. And this was a testy group of people. This church was filled with jealousy and fighting. And, And one of the things that they were fighting the most about was the whole issue of status and rank in the church. So in the first three verses... Paul confronts this fight head on. Uh, Apparently, some of the Corinthian Christians believed that certain spiritual gifts or certain spiritual experiences made you elite in the kingdom of God, elite in the church. It gave you some sort of hierarchy, some sort of status among the church. So look what Paul says in contrast to that view in verse 3. I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Because we're going to go through all of chapter 12 and all of chapter 13, I don't have time to show you that there's a lot going on in verses 1 and 2 and 3. A lot that's clear and a lot that we're not sure what Paul was saying. But what almost all of the scholars agree upon is this. The bottom line, it's not about a spiritual experience or a spiritual gift. The indication that God is powerfully at work in your life is this. It's the creed. It's what your thought and your life demonstrate about the Lordship of Christ. By creed, I mean a belief that shapes your life. This is the basis, Paul is saying, this is the basis of a unity, a genuine unity that can overcome your factions. A creed, a a church that is fueled by a life-shaping belief in Jesus as Lord. And Paul is starting out his whole discussion of their factions by saying this is the basis of unity. This is what makes a person mature or immature. This is the only thing that gives you status in the kingdom of God. Christ as Lord. And it's what we all have in common. Now, when we turn to verses 4 through 11, 
Paul changes his emphasis from the issue of unity to the issue of diversity. Look in verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts. Verse 5. There are varieties of service. Verse 6. Varieties of activities. Okay, so there are different gifts, different services, and different ways God works in our life to use those gifts, different ways God activates his gift in the church. Now go back to verse 4. All of these differences, what does it say? Where are they from? Verse 4, they are from the same Spirit. Verse 5, from the same Lord. And verse 6, what does your Bible say? From the same do you see how Paul, what he's doing is he's saying, hey, your differences are rooted in the very nature of God. God in his nature is unity and diversity. He's one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that God who in his nature is unity and diversity, when he forms his church, he forms a church that has both of those characteristics because that's who he is. He's unity and he's diversity. And so in the church, there are varieties of gifts from the same Lord, varieties of service from the same Lord, varieties of ways these gifts play out from the same Lord. Now, what Paul is doing here is he's starting out the whole chapter by saying that whenever you think about church life, it is rooted in the nature of God. Look what he says in verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, and get this last four words, for the common good. Now, let me just say, if God has called you to this church, then you have a role to play in this church, or your church in Fairfield or Altadena. Whatever church you're in, that church, it is a place where you have a unique role to play. You have a gift that our church needs to be healthy. Think of this church or your church like an orchestra. Each person has a unique contribution to the song. Jump down to verse 11. All of these gifts he just gave in verses 8 through 10, he gave a list of gifts. And then he says, all of these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Every person that God calls to this church has a gift from God for this church. Now, I hope that you're beginning to see and that as we continue through this chapter, Paul's notion of what's going on in this room is not this kind of voluntary organization that you feel an urge to join up with, right? He's got a huge emphasis here on, oh yeah, you think you chose this church? No, 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 no. God chose you. God called you here. God gave you a gift that is unique for this church and that this church requires in order to be a healthy church. So... In verses 1 to 3, our unity as a church must be based on the life-shaping belief that Jesus alone is the Lord. 
And verses 4 through 11, we each have a gift chosen by God for the health of this church. Now, when we turn to verses 12 through 26, Paul starts the cycle over. Once again, he turns to the theme of unity and diversity. So verses 1 through 11, cycle 1, he focuses on unity, diversity. Verses 12 through 26, cycle 2. But he does it this time from a different angle to make a slightly different point of application. Look at verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now here Paul is returning to his emphasis on unity. And he's saying that our common experience of conversion overcomes all of the the divisions created by, get this, race and social status. He could not have picked something more divisive to say that our birth into God's kingdom overcomes. Jew or Greek, that's race. Slave or free, that's social status. He's saying if you've been called to be a part of this church, our common experience with Christ overcomes everything. Everything. It unites us. He's saying, hey, we belong to one another. Each one of us has been personally called by God To the other person. We belong to one another. We are called to belong to this community. This is not a voluntary organization. Now, in verses 15 through 26, Paul turns to the theme of diversity. But this time, he focuses his sights on two great threats to the gift of unity in diversity. First of all, in verses 15 through 20, God is showing us that our community will face the threat of insecurity and jealousy. Look at verse 15. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I I don't belong to this body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. Now, what Paul is saying here, envy destroys community. When I look at somebody else and say, man, I I don't have that gift. I don't have that ability. I'm bringing pain to this group. I'm not bringing strength to this group or fill in the blank. However your inferiority plays itself out, envy destroys community. Envy comes when I don't know what my gift is for the body. Or when I do know what my gift is, but I don't really believe in it. I don't believe that I have anything to offer this group of strong, got-it-together kind of people. But when we're confident in our gift, we don't struggle with envy. I'm not trying to say just work hard and get over it. Each one of us needs the Holy Spirit to accept the gift that God has given us and 
to accept each other's gift. See, I've got to accept Robert's gift and not try to push him into uniformity. I've got to really believe that whatever gift Sloan brings to this church is what God intends for Sloan to bring to this church. Look at verses 18 and 19. As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? When you are not faithful to your gift, you harm the community. You do violence to the community. It's critical that every one of us knows what our gift is and that we take responsibility to develop our gift. And it's critical that we learn to listen closely to each other so that we can recognize what the other person's gift is and affirm them in it and hold one another accountable to use our gifts. Now, Paul gave a list back in verses 8 through 10 of some gifts. And in verses 28 through 30, he gives another list. And in Romans chapter 12, he's got a list. And in, in Ephesians 4, he's got a list. In 1 Peter chapter 4, he's got a list. And none of them are comprehensive. They're all just examples. What he's trying to do in all of these passages is say there is something deeper than your talent. There is a gift that God has given. And it might be hidden and it might be latent, but it is something that God has given you for this community. And you must discover it and develop it and you must believe that it has significance for this church or your church, whatever church you're involved in. And you must know that your church will suffer until your gift blooms in your life. So the first enemy of our church's unity and diversity are the feelings of inferiority and jealousy that cause us to neglect our gift because we're longing for another gift. The second threat to a church's unity is not caused by feelings of inferiority, but by feelings of superiority. Look at verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor can the head to the feet say, I have no need of you. In both these examples, what's interesting is that the direction and the content is from above, right? The eye is above the hand, right? And the head is above the feet. What, what Paul is saying is, he's saying, look, those of you who consider yourselves at the top of the hierarchy, you think you can get along without the little people? You are filled with self-sufficiency? I don't need the hand. I don't need the foot. I, I don't need that person. Now, we know from back in chapter 11, what Paul's really taken his aim at are the haves and the have-nots. They were showing up for communion, and the haves were getting there early and drinking all the good stuff. And the have-nots were showing up hungry. And Paul still got this kind of haves, have-nots tension in his mind when he's bringing this issue up. And look what he says in verse 22, to the haves who think that they can get along 
without the have-nots. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Now look, our world has brainwashed us into thinking that strength equals value. And Paul is laying that flat. He's saying that's not the case at all. He's saying you want to know what is really valuable? Weakness. He's saying in the kingdom of God, everything you Corinthians imported from your Corinthian culture into the church when it comes to what makes a person valuable is wrong. He's saying weakness is what's really valuable to a church. Now this is particularly important for all things new. As far as I can tell, there is no book of the Bible that is more closely analogous to Over the Mountain than Corinthians. And one day, we're going to work our way through the book. We live in a culture on this side of the mountain of success and strength. Strength, success, ability, it's idolized. And we've got all these status indicators that rank people and that demonstrate who's valuable and who's not. And what we're seeing here in 1 Corinthians 12 is that we as a church, if we're going to be a faithful church in the midst of this community, we must refuse to exclude the weak and the insignificant from our church. And, and we must know that not only do the weak need the strong. I preached on that last week when I preached on mercy and justice. But we must know that the strong cannot exist without the weak. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. He said the elimination of the weak is the death of a Christian community. And we must believe that. When someone with a disability or when someone who is suffering or when someone who is weak walks through those doors, they are the most precious parts of this community. When the person walks through that door who cannot help us one cent with our financial needs or our needs for anything else, when that person comes in, they are precious and necessary and brought by God as a gift to us. And we must believe that because when the weak and the suffering and the insignificant show up, now we can live out what is genuine about the gospel of the kingdom. Now, Part of what all this means is that you may not have a spectacular gift. You, you might be a child in this community or a teenager or I don't know. what, Or you just might feel like you don't have an outstanding ability. But what we're seeing here is that you are necessary and you are important to this community and you are needed and on the flip side of that coin you may have a special gift but don't think that you're the be all and end all of what this church or whatever your church is needs 
One more thing on this point. For us to be a community of unity in diversity, where the weak and the strong, where all of us are free to be ourselves, then the most important characteristic that we can develop is not perfection and it's not even generosity. The qualities that we most need if we're going to be a community where the weak and the strong are together more than super maturity, more than generosity, what we need are humility and trust. Because if those things are missing, the weak and the strong aren't going to be together in the same community. Now, in the last paragraph of 1 Corinthians 12, Paul ties everything together. Look at verse 27. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles and gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of of tongues. In other words, Paul is saying, if God has called you to this church, then you are necessary for the health of this church. Whatever church God has called you to, you are necessary for the health of that church. Now look at verse 29. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? These are rhetorical questions. The answer is no. You see, he's saying not only are you necessary for our church to be healthy, that's verse 28, but in verse 29, he's turning it around and he's saying that if God has called you to this church, then this church is necessary for you to be healthy. Are all apostles? Do you have every gift? Do you have everything you need? No, you don't have everything you need. I've got a bit of what you need. And Sarah Coleman has some of what you need. And Alan and Wendy and Allison, we all have exactly what we all need. You can't make it on your own. You, you weren't meant to make it on your own. You are not equipped to make it on your own. But go back to verse 7. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now notice, he doesn't say to each one is given a spiritual gift. Instead, he calls a spiritual gift something else. He calls it a manifestation of the Spirit. Your gift is the way that Jesus Christ manifests himself in this group. And when you don't discover it, when you don't use it because of inferiority or because of superiority, you divide yourself off into self-sufficient groups, then you are denying Christ to this church. This is the goal of Christian community. Are you ready? It's this. It is to encounter one another as bringers of Christ. This church is healthy. When I walk through that door and I see James and I encounter him as bringing Christ to me. 
That's the goal. That's what Paul is getting at in all of these words about gifts and manifestations of the Spirit. He's saying, look, the goal of Christian community is to get rid of inferiority, get rid of superiority, and learn to encounter one another as the bringer of Christ. And only through a church can I encounter the fullness of Christ. Paul is making the strong point, since none of us have all the gifts, all of us need all of us. So that's a tour of 1 Corinthians 12. Our church needs both unity and diversity. And we cannot have one without the other. And this is impossible to achieve. Have you ever been a part of a church that tries to get the weak and the strong to actually really exist together? And this is like a pipe dream. Because, you know why? We've got this deep built-in need and desire for unity that gets pushed into the perversion of uniformity. Pretty soon you show up, and as time goes by, it's more and more of the same. Or, on the other hand, our differences, this gift, that gift, this style of serving, that style of working, our differences become the basis of divisions. I mean, these are the two pressures, right? Unity being pushed and twisted into uniformity and differences being the basis for factions. So what prevents unity from twisting into uniformity and diversity from causing division? Well, in a word, love. That's the context of 1 Corinthians 13. We hear it read so much at weddings that we forget this isn't really primarily about a husband and a wife. It's really primarily about me and Chris. I mean, this is, Paul gets to the end of this impossible situation and the Corinthians are scratching their heads saying, holy cow, we can't live up to this. And Paul says, look what he says at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I will show you An excellent way to achieve this. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. See, Paul is saying your gift that God has given you to build up this church, it is of no help if it's not accompanied by love. He's saying, don't put all your eggs in the basket of some spiritual gifts test of discovering who you are and embracing yourself or whatever. There's going to come a day, if it hasn't already come for you, and for some of you it's already come multiple times, when this great disillusionment overwhelms you. And you're disillusioned with me. I know it's hard to imagine. You're disillusioned with Christians in general with the church, with yourself. And in that moment, you face the choice of clinging to an ideal vision of the church or choosing the reality. And in that moment, when you have to decide if you're going to let your idealized image of your marriage collapse your idealized image of what all things new is going to be collapse. Your idealized, in that moment, when you have to make that decision, 
genuine Christian community has a chance to emerge in that moment. And until that moment, it's nothing but playing games. In that moment, you can learn how to love. And it's when we learn how to love that all things new can become a genuine Christian community. Look, look what Paul says. Love is patient. Now, love is patient. It, it's unfortunate that our English Bibles translate love is patient with an adjective because really in Greek, it's a verb. Love waits patiently. See, love does not exist apart from an action. It, love is not a noun. It doesn't exist in the abstract. Paul is saying very technically here, love is a chosen behavior. In other words, love doesn't sit in the car and honk. It doesn't. Love waits patiently. Now think about verses 4 through 7 in the context of the way our church must learn to treat one another if we're going to overcome the pressure toward uniformity or the pressure toward differences. Love waits patiently and shows kindness. Love does not burn with envy or brag. See, he's connecting back up to two big issues he just addressed. Love is not inflated with its own importance or behave with poor manners. It is not preoccupied with self-interest. It is not easily irritated or bitter. It does not keep a record of wrong, but joyfully celebrates plain, old, honest truth. Love never tires of support, never loses faith, never exhausts hope, never gives up. Do you see that when Paul is describing the kind of love that is necessary to steer us away from these two extremes of uniformity and division, he's not describing a feeling, something you fall into or out of. He's describing a chosen behavior. To love, and here's the way I would define love based on that chapter. To love is to actively seek the benefit of the other person. To love is to act. Anything short of an action is not love at all. So through this incredible poem, God is teaching us that if we're going to avoid these dangerous extremes we must begin to actively seek the benefit of one another. This kind of love. This kind of love will build up a community. Your job, my job, is to learn the habit of this kind of love. And to combine that with our gift. And those two things together is going to build all things new into a Christian community. Now, obviously, this is a long-term commitment. You don't say, oh, I'm not going to be irritable anymore. Love is a habit. It's not a feeling. It's a chosen behavior. And it's something that I will give you many opportunities to practice. Many opportunities to practice grace toward me 
and you'll give me some for you too. So let's take it all back to where we started and wrap this whole thing up. Our church exists to embrace, embody, and spread the gospel of Christ's kingdom throughout Birmingham and the world. And a fundamental way that we will translate that vision into reality is through our community life. That's why one of the five basic ministries of our church is community formation. The formation of a community that is unity and diversity. And one of the basic ways that we're going to work at this is we're going to have small groups. Small groups of 6 to 12 people that meet in homes during the week, spend enough time together that we can sin against each other. Because until we've sinned against each other, We haven't forgiven each other. And forgiveness is the fuel of community. In other words, until we sin against one another, we do not have the opportunity for Christian community. So we're going to spend time in these groups and the primary purpose of these groups is going to be to develop Christian community. Now, can can you just imagine how rich the community of this church will be when we learn to practice loving one another in these kinds of ways. When each one of us takes responsibility to develop, to recognize, to to use our gifts, when we accept ourselves and and our abilities for who God made us to be, what kind of church will we be when we're a community formed by humility and trust? Can you imagine how powerful that would be in this community? Let's pray.